Matchbook Presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about the first task. Hey everyone, so today is a really fun episode. We're going over chapters 19 and 20 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and I am once again joined by Danny and Steven from Creating Magic Podcast, but before we dive in, I want to give a house points update. So, you guys are killing it. So Hufflepuff is in the lead with 1,610 points. In second place is Slytherin with 695 points. Ravenclaw is in third place with 395 points. And Gryffindor is in last place with 385 points. Thank you guys so much for participating in our weekly trivia on Wednesdays and our Mindful Magic Mondays on Mondays. (laughs) You guys can continue to earn house points by continuing to participate in both of those things, also rating and reviewing the podcast, um, and leaving your name in Hogwarts House. I really love that you guys show up for your houses, and I'm really excited to see how these standings change as we continue to read Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So, without further ado, episode 36. All right, welcome everybody to episode 36 of First Years, and Creating Magic is back. Yay. Hi, guys. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Steven's just not going to respond. I prepared something. (laughs) Okay, would you like to share what you prepared? I want to be just like Harry. I can't believe he entered without me. I want to be one of those, what do you call them? Oh, champs. Up where they strut, up where they grin. All I've ever wanted is to win some glory. All for me, Ronald Weasley. I also, in addition to podcasts, do birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, weddings, and quinceañeras. So uh, just uh, hit me up, muggle and khakis. That was the best way to start off this podcast. Well, our past couple of appearances, I've tried to more conform to the sense of professionalism and decorum that exudes from your episodes. And then I was like, you know what? No, people don't listen to me for decorum. Uh, so I'm just, I'm bringing it today. I love that. And it's, you know what, it's really fitting though, because one of my first questions for you guys, um, to touch on not just what happens in these chapters, but the previous ones is why do we think Ron doesn't believe Harry when he says that he didn't actually put his name in the Goblet of Fire? Because Ron is the most insecure person. I mean, look, all teenagers to varying extents are insecure. But whether it's the fact that he's what, the fifth child in that family or the fact that his family doesn't have a lot of money or the fact that for three years now, um, rightfully, wrongfully or otherwise, Harry has received a majority of the credit for things that the group has done. Ron is just not in a great place. Um, And so it, it wasn't gonna take much to set Ron off and like on the scale of not a lot to a big freaking deal. Uh, Harry becoming a Triwizard Champion is a big freaking deal. And so like, it just blew the, the, the top off, if you ask me. Do you have the opposite question of why did it take Ron seeing the first task to be like, yeah, you didn't do that. When like, they didn't know what the tasks were. So like he didn't, and I don't know, it just confuses me. If he's like, 
oh yeah, you wouldn't have signed up to do that. Uh, we're good. We're cool. We're friends. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I like this, the conflict between them in these chapters is, is really heartbreaking to me, which I touched on in the last episode. And I think you bring up a really good point, Stephen, is that Harry's been getting credit for things that they have been doing all together. I didn't think about that. Um, but why, like, how do you think Ron like justified being mad at Harry? Like what reason was he like, what reason did he give himself that Harry was lying to him? I think that throughout the series so far, every time that Harry has received credit publicly, privately and privately being a relative term, Harry's always been like effusive about the fact that it was a group effort and that he couldn't do it without Hermione and Ron. Whereas the both the symbolism and the physical act of entering your name into the Goblet of Fire takes initiative and takes in some way, shape or form like the personal desire to do so. I think that's where Ron's like, okay, this is the truth. This is the quiet part spoken out loud finally. And all those doubts that Ron probably had well, they're finally actualized through Harry and his mind taking this proactive step. Well, and then whenever, like, it's, he's almost like a ticking time bomb. Like, you know, it's already started, but then what happens is they act like your traditional siblings that you just get madder and madder as it goes on. So you don't, when someone says something, you respond, which makes each other angrier and it just kind of got worse rather than getting better. Hmm. Yeah. I just feel bad <laughs> like for the both of them in this situation. But since Harry's name did come out of the Goblet of Fire, what, so each of these champions was specifically selected as like the best choice, right? To win the Triwizard Tournament. So what qualities do you think Harry has that got him selected? Or if because Moody talks about in the previous chapter that someone must have confunded the cup to make it seem like there was a fourth school and put Harry's name under it. So do you think that Harry was really only selected because he was the only name for that fourth school? Like if Harry actually had put his name in under Hogwarts, would he have gotten chosen or would Cedric still be the champion? I quite honestly think it was just plot. I mean, there's, come on, you're not going to have a Harry Potter book where Harry Potter isn't the main character. So JKR needed some reason for Harry to be the main character, despite the rules, the rules that she created, mind you, saying he wasn't old enough to participate. Um, so whether that was some advanced magic that she wrote in to allow there to be two Hogwarts champions, or if we accept Moody's explanation in the prior chapter, that he was the only participant amongst you know, the fourth school, you know, quote unquote, plot. I, I'm not going to think any further about that. It's not Cedric Diggory and the Goblet of Fire, which I would love as a proud Hufflepuff, I would be all for. That's not the book that sold millions of copies. I don't know if you can, like, determine if Harry would have been chosen had he been entered. Because, like, if you think of all the... Now, we don't know enough about the other champions to know what caused them to be chosen right so you don't really know what they consider as worthy of being a champion and what that actually entails yeah I yeah it, that's true we don't really know a lot about these characters um and I'm sure we'll see that play out throughout the rest of the book um but we do see that like at least with like the headmasters besides Dumbledore that the headmasters want to cheat <laughs> to help their champions win. And so those champ, like the other champions seem to be okay with that. Um, but if this is a tournament that's like supposed to test wizards on all of these like qualities that they're supposed to have, but cheating is part of the tournament, which Moody says, you know, what does that mean? And like, what does it mean that these other headmasters want to prove that Dumbledore is only human? I think you need impartial judges. That is like one of the biggest mistakes that they've made. Yeah. Like, every single one of these judges has something to gain and something to lose in this. 
Well, and to that end, if we try to put on our omniscient kind of third party hat here, the other judges are accusing Dumbledore of cheating by Harry getting in. So, you know, we as readers are inclined to say Dumbledore's not cheating because we trust Dumbledore. We know Dumbledore. You know, we, you know, we know this character. The other schools look at this and say, hey, how come they get two champions? That's not, that's not what we signed up for. So the other headmaster, headmistress, you know, duo might be cheating in other ways. But in their mind, Dumbledore started this by bringing a second Hogwarts contender into play. I mean, it's almost like they just should have not allowed Harry to compete and then it would have been fair. Like It would have been that simple. Like, it doesn't fit the rules. He's not allowed. But and then that'd be the shortest be. book ever. But this, it, well, it would be. And again, then it would be Cedric Diggory and the Goblet of Fire, which I'm here for. But, you know, millions of Americans and people around the world probably aren't. This is actually a conversation. Sarah, Do we? can we go here about the texts that we had the other day? About oh, what yeah. happened. Yeah. So Sarah and I were texting as one does, you know, Harry Potter podcasters text. It's, it's, you know, it's an exclusive thing. Some people are welcome, some aren't. Um, and we were talking about the consequences of what, it ha- what would happen if Harry had been like, nah, I'm not doing this. Um, and I posit that there's some, there's some variant of some magic that is binding that would cause serious potentially fatal punishment if Harry didn't. Because otherwise, why is why aren't people just being like, no, he's not doing this. It's, it's against, to Danny's point, it's against the rules. Well, um, there has to be also, some compelling reason beyond we want to see how this plays out. And added to that, we do know from this book that the age line was just added. So it's not worked into the makeup of the cup. But why not though? And I asked this, I also asked this on the last episode, but I, I want to know your guys' thoughts is that like, if there are like specific rules for the Triwizard Tournament and the government decided let's add this extra rule to make it safer because it needs to be safer so that it can, we can host it again. Why wasn't that like officially added to the, like to the rule book? Yeah, and you don't like questioning like previous tournaments like that would have been something smart to add to the beginning because you don't want like Colin Creevy being like yeah I'm gonna be the one (laughs) and him entering and then dying in the first task which I am like convinced happened like otherwise I feel like there would be no age like there's reason for the age line and something bad happened yes maybe because it's a magical object that was already created like even though it could be added to the the rule book, it couldn't be added to the magic that created the goblet. True. And then that makes me think of like what um, I, I had thought about sort of the aspect of tradition in this book, where especially during the, oh, not the opening ceremony, but like the opening feast of Hogwarts, where like they still are you know dividing these houses and the sorting hat was really created to sort the students when the founders were gone and you know we see all of this division within Hogwarts and yet they're still keeping up this tradition that the all the students have to live separately and eat at separate tables and we never really see like an intermingling of students And so I wonder if that sort of goes hand in hand with like this tradition that's upheld at Hogwarts and then the the tradition of the Triwizard Tournament is also, it has to be upheld the way it was, even though people sort of want to change it a little bit. We know what my next comment is, right? Tradition, tradition. Tradition, tradition. Uh, anyhow, I wasn't really listening to anything you said beyond the fact that you said tradition like seven times. So I'm going to let Danny <laughs> handle this one. I guess that is one thing with the wizarding world that we kind of learn is that, and even just like in their basic lack of technology, they don't really grow as a society. They just kind of keep doing what they've, what they've already known. <laughs> 
I was agreeing with you I with my hand gestures. I wasn't cutting you off. I was agreeing that they stay stagnant as a society. Okay. That Absolutely. looked like you were cutting me off. I'm like, what did I say? No, wrong? I was trying to indicate a flat line indicating yeah. stagnation rather like, than progressive growth. Their biggest improvement in the last hundreds of years is that they added pipes and <laughs> plumbing. Well, that's a big one. Look, the pipes are a big one. That look is I know it's a big one, but if because, that's the only thing in hundreds of years. Because before the pipes, mind you, wizards were apparently just defecating left and right all across the halls of Hogwarts <laughs> and then just vanishing it wherever they stood. So I'm with you that the society is stagnant and that there's a lot of cultural norms that are accepted and never questioned over time, seemingly within <laughs> Hogwarts and the greater wizarding world. But the fact that they got pipes was a big one. And let's not use that to diminish their progress as a society. That's all I'm saying. For anyone who doesn't know, that's not, that detail isn't in the series. It's extra content that we get. Look it up. You will, nothing about your experience reading Harry Potter for the first time will be spoiled by looking up the history of modern plumbing in the wizarding world. That's all I'm saying. So, okay, so besides that, we also see more of Rita Skeeter in this chapter through the article that she published about Harry, um, which is full of things that he didn't actually say, speculates that he's dating Hermione, and everyone's talking about it, including, if I'm remembering correctly, Mrs. Beasley even takes it seriously, that she, like, didn't know that Harry still cried over his parents, and... What do we make of that? He's a reporter. Yeah, you know, outside of the story itself, it feels very obviously like a meta-criticism of what I have to imagine J.K.R. at the time was going through, because I guess at the time this book came out, she was already a pretty well-known, world-renowned author at this point. Um, And so I have to, look, I was in third or fourth grade. So I wasn't reading the tabloids then, but you know, one has to assume that she was facing um, her fair amount of, her fair share of untruths at the time. Um, Yeah, I, I I think it's interesting because it adds another very real element into the series, right? Because Mrs. Weasley to this point in time has been delightful, but very one dimensional as this loving, doting, stern to her kids, but overwhelmingly warm mother. And then this kind of introduces a whole new aspect to her, to her character that feels very real to real life, right? We all know people in our lives who, for better, worse, or otherwise, like we have parents or aunts or uncles or whomever that will traffic in, you know, new, you know grocery store tabloid stuff. Um, and it's amazing that people believe it, but people believe it. Um, so I, I think it's a very relatable uh, kind of snippet that she's entered into the story here. So later on in this first chapter, uh, Hagrid leads Harry um, into finding out what the first task is going to be. And Harry learns that he's going to have to face a dragon. And if we see them, they're like sort of on the outskirts of the forests, but like far away from the castle. They're really not happy. It takes six or or seven or eight wizards to each dragon to, you know, stun them. My first question is, how did they transport these dragons? I mean, they have to have a system because you figure, I don't know if it's in like book two because what's when like they first mentioned charlie where like if there's a dragon problem they have to relocate they first mentioned charlie in book one but you don't really hear about him in norbert oh that is book one i'm sorry thank you thank you i um this is a glorious moment for me and my family i'd like to thank the academy um i'd like to thank my agent i'd like to thank my co-stars and most importantly i'd like to thank my god um, as for how they transport them, I mean, nothing humane, right? Uh, the kick I've been on recently is um, uh, animal rights and animal welfare. Shout out to Tyler Starr of the Protego Foundation and Chick Beeps. 
Um, can't imagine anything humane. I would imagine maybe they drug the food that they that the dragons consume. Wait, in the books they said they sedated them. Oh, so yeah, there it's we go. A, yeah. Like they did admit that they gave them like a potion of some kind to sedate them. And then they woke up, they were not very happy. And so then they used like stunning spells against them. But like, my question is, is like physically, how do you transport a dragon? Because they're like, they're bigger than the Hogwarts Express. So that's not going to happen. Yeah. And like, I would imagine you probably can't transfigure a dragon into like a smaller Mm -hmm. dragon. And I would assume that if they're allowed, if they're allowed to like fly, they probably are more independent and aren't going to just go where you tell them to go. It's probably some version of like a muggle, like freight kind of transport. I don't know how, you know, there's probably some sort of magic that cloaks them and, you know, makes it look to the passerby like it's just some shipping crates or whatever. Like when they relocate whales. Okay, I also watched Seaspiracy recently. I don't want to talk about that. That makes me sad. I'm all on this animal rights kick, y'all. Treat your dragons better is all I'm saying. Yeah. They're all mommy dragons. I I know, which like leads me into my next question, which is going to be the ethics of this entire task anyway, and how Charlie feels about it, which I asked earlier um, in this book when we first meet Bill and Charlie in person, Bill is wearing dragon hide boots. And we know the kids use dragon hide gloves in some of their classes. Um, So they're not only just like transporting these dragons from wherever they are. I I feel like I assume they're from the reserve that Charlie works on, but we don't really know. Um, Then they're fooling the dragon into thinking that this golden egg is part of their like clutch of eggs and that someone is actively trying to steal it. And during the task... Crumb causes one of the dragons to step on her own eggs. So uh, how does Charlie feel about all of this? And what are the ethics of this entire situation? I don't like it. (laughs) I don't think Charlie would like it. Like the character of Charlie, I feel like would not like it, but also he took part in it. Yeah, well, this gets into a whole debate that I take no original thought credit for again this is all Tyler and the Bordego Foundation which is animal rights versus animal welfare and you know people like Hagrid people like I guess for that matter Bill who we see in the dragon hide and Charlie like given the 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 way we posit these dragons were transited you know transported over you have to assume Charlie as well fall in the category of animal welfare and not animal rights animal rights uh you know People who are who are animal rights activists or people who ascribe to animal rights believe that you know, animals are not ours to use in any way, shape, or form. Food, entertainment, clothing, you name it. Whereas people who are uh, into animal welfare um, just believe more in humane treatment of animals, even if that does end in entertainment, food, clothing. Um, so, you know, it's... It, Charlie and Hagrid, for that matter, and a lot of these characters seem to be much more on the humane treatment of animal side but they don't go so far as to say we shouldn't be doing this at all yeah i i just always wondered about how charlie feels <laughs> about this whole situation and if he was like excited about the idea when they approached him i'm assuming about hey this is the idea we have for the first task was he like oh my god it's going to be totally awesome or was he like you guys are crazy, but I don't think anyone else can like take care of these dragons as well as I can. So I'll just make sure everything's okay. I also think there's a whole nother question to be asked about the size of the wizarding world writ large, right? Because don't get me wrong. I love that we see Charlie and that Charlie's the one, but are you telling me that anytime they have anything to do with a dragon, they fly Charlie in from Romania? Surely the Ministry of Magic has a, you know, some form of a professional who is trained to deal with this, who lives within the greater United Kingdom. 
Well, right. then maybe that that is on the point that the dragons did come from the reserve where Charlie mm-hmm. works, which is why he would be there. Do we think that the reserve is actually under the employee of the Ministry of Magic? I was just thinking that. I'm like, oh, we everybody have this- in the wizarding world is either unemployed or employed by the ministry. Probably. That, that does this support the everyone works for the government theory. Except so if you the, own a shop. Does the Ministry of Magic, like, is that just the government for, like, every country? It's just this one? Well, it's a great question because as far as I recall, during, like, the opening festivities for the Triwizard Tournament, we're not introduced to any form of uh, Durmstrang's party crouch or Bobaton's Party Crouch. Who's but, the guy that's in the box? With well, the- during the Quidditch World Cup, exactly. During the Quidditch World Cup, you know, we have the whole comical interaction between Bagman and the foreigners and then Fudge. And, you know, so it, that's a great question. I don't know. So, Will, I'm going to put dragons on hold for just a second so we can talk about the rest of the things that happened before the actual task starts. So we meet Sirius again at the end of this chapter, and he shares with us that Karkaroff was an Azkaban for being a Death Eater, and he thinks that whatever happened with Moody the night before he started at Hogwarts, that something actually happened, and not he's not just brushing it off like everybody else has about, like, oh, Moody's just crazy. He just thinks, you know, a stray cat attacked him or whatever. So... We know that Voldemort is plotting something. You know, we saw that in the first chapter. And it is sort of becoming clearer that someone may, the reason that Harry's name came out of the goblet is because someone put it there specifically hoping to kill Harry in in some form. Do we think that's that is part of Voldemort's plan of whatever he's up to or do we think there's somebody else acting independently to hurt Harry well yeah I mean look Karkarov is not good news um like straight up you know whether Sirius had said Karkarov's a death was a death eater or not I don't think anyone's looking at Karkarov being like yeah he's gonna save the day um but also, I don't know, to your, to your assertion, I don't know that we as readers know that someone wanted to kill Harry by entering his name into the Triwizard Tournament. Um, certainly the professors and everyone posits that no one did it for good reasons. Um, but, you know, for all we know, this could be someone, you know, someone, like for, if you told me that Draco entered his name, Right, because he has wanted to see Harry, you know, embarrass himself. Die. Well, yeah, well, die perhaps. <laughs> but you know, on the spectrum, I could I could make an argument that Draco just wants to see Harry embarrassed. Okay, I believe that. You know, I that sounds reasonable to me. Everything we know about Draco thus far is he enjoys seeing Potter, you know, put to shame. Um, so I don't I don't know if there's anyone else. Again, you know, Karkarov doesn't seem like good news. Seems likely that it's him. Voldemort, you know, we got the flat, not the flashback, but the, you know, the, the dream, um, mm-hmm. you know, Volby's always there, but I, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if we can pin this on anybody or pin this on the sole intent to, to kill Harry as of right now. Do we think that Sirius is a little conspiracy theorist where he only sees Serious. Look, I after mean, so it's many true. Years, I mean, he and Moody could both be just like really into the conspiracy of this entire situation. Look, and as somebody who is a card carrying tin hat wearer, I'm all for it. I'm all about a good conspiracy. Um, but we also haven't been we haven't been given any reason to believe that Sirius is wearing his tin hat here, right? Like, you know. Once we finally met Sirius and we weren't, we were no longer talking about him, but actually talking to him as readers, he's been every bit rational, reasonable kind of, you know, he's, he's not been the crazy man everyone made him out to be before we actually met him at the end of Azkaban. 
Um, so I don't, I don't know how much I kind of ascribe to him being a, a tin hat wearing loon. Would you say that Moody is? Yes, but I also think that's his thing. Like I, <laughs> you know, like there are always those people in life who are just like outlandish beyond belief. And you're like, are they for like, uh, here's a good one. I look, I don't love that I'm bringing this up. I'm sorry in advance. But of all of the lunatics that have been around the former president in the past handful of years, Roger Stone is like, by and away, kind of the most insane because, like, he dresses cartoonishly, he like is a buffoon. And you're like, is he putting on an act or is that just like who he is? And like, that's his shtick is very much part of who he is. And so, whether Moody is actually crazy or not. I think in order to be a dark wizard catcher for so many years, you kind of have to put on that aura, whether it's real or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a facade. Yeah. And because, so Moody helps Harry sort of figure out his game plan for the first task. Um, but we see in his office that he has a bunch of dark detectors in his office. He has a secrecy sensor that he says keeps uh, keeps getting interference because all of the students are lying about having not done their homework. Um, and he also talks about his sneakoscope that keeps going off, which if you remember from book three, Ron got Harry as a present and it went off um, and everyone was just saying that it was a piece of crap. But little did we know that Ron's rat was actually Peter Pettigrew. So I kind of feel like I trust sneakoscopes <laughs> by now. And so if Moody's like keeps going off, do we like he he even makes the point that like it he turned it off because of all the student interference. But if he had kept it on, it would probably be catching more like adult stuff. And so do we think that his sneakoscope, it wasn't just like the students, it was picking up on like something more nefarious going on? Does that give sort of credit to Sirius and Moody's conspiracy theory about what's going on? Well, the inherent issue with the sneakoscope is the same as the remember all, which is it doesn't have any nuance to it, right? Like the remember all, like Neville says back in book one, I can't remember what I've forgotten, which is the problem, right? And the sneakoscope tells you that something's up, but doesn't give you any nuance as to, you know, a, a level or a culprit? layer. I'd like to think I have a headcanon where like the professors are all into some, like always up to something, right? Whether it's like one who's like envious of another and wants his job, like like Snape we've been told has always wanted the defense against the dark arts job. So maybe the sneak of soap's going off because like Snape's always trying to like get something, get dirt on the current defense against the dark arts professor. Maybe McGonagall like, has gambling issues. McGonagall is gambling away a fortune on Quidditch um you know parker ops in the building yeah like if, if you told me that professors had like illicit romances or something like that you know like i, I like to think there's always something beyond just like childish sneakoscope detection right there's always something going on there that's gonna well, raise even like dumbledore like one of those is not going to survive around him because he has always has some little <laughs> background information he's not sharing yeah i mean dumbledore in in year one when harry's 11 Dumbledore gifts Harry the invisibility cloak that we learn was Harry. So he was gifting him something that belonged to him in the first place. But Dumbledore gives a child a device that allows him free reign of the castle any time of day with complete discretion. So like, yeah, I'm with Danny on that one. <laughs> I like that. So Harry decides that his strength is flying and that he needs to learn a summoning spell to allow him to get his broom for the first task. And so we see that he's successful um, in this plan. And if we, if these tasks are supposed to show off the talents and the strengths of each of these champions. So Harry's is flying, Cedric uses transfiguration, Fleur uses a charm and Crumb uses a spell that like goes right into the eye of the dragon. What does that say about each of, like what do we learn about each of them through that? Well, I learned that Harry is not one for the rules because like 
imagine that like there was some device that was like a dragon uh kill i don't want to say kill but like a disabler right what's stopping harry from being like akio dragon disabler like if you could just summon things that aren't there that's not really i mean come on it's a um, loophole yeah it's a loophole um so i don't I can't speak, I don't, I don't have any thoughts beyond but, that, you know. Yeah. Well, it also speaks to the fact that Harry is significantly younger than them and hasn't had the classes to be introduced to some of these spells where he could have learned them. That's true. So in a way, he had to be a bit more creative because he didn't have the time to be able to learn something that was not in his skill level. I would like to see... I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we know that so far Harry's now had four with Moody being the fourth defense against the dark arts professors. I would love to see what like the standard, like, cause theoretically at some point in the past, there's been continuity in that role. I'd love to see what the standard curriculum for that class is like what they actually learn in each year. Cause obviously in Harry's second year, they learn nothing. Um, we don't know a ton, as far as I recall, about what they learned in the first year. Third year seemed like it was a great education. Um, but yeah, what what are they supposed, like, like what, to your point, Danny, that like, what did Cedric learn, because Cedric's older, like, what did Cedric learn in Defense Against the Dark Arts in his respective years that Harry's now gone through? Like, were they that much more actually practical and helpful? Like, I, I don't know. But the spells they used, if you look at even the ones that didn't go to Hogwarts, they're not defense against the dark arts classes. They are charms and transfiguration courses. Mm-hmm. They didn't use knowledge from the class you would kind of think there should be some knowledge coming from. Like their knowledge came from a charms class, a transfiguration class, possibly with crown, like a care of magical creatures class. Harry knows how to transform a small animal into a drinking glass. He could have done that. <laughs> He also knows how to uh, lift and levitate a feather quill. Um, so I think he's aptly prepared with all of his spell work. I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> what did stand out to me, though, is that the fact that Fleur does use charm and she's part Vila. And we've seen that the Vila um, in the Quidditch World Cup were like charming all the men. So I thought that was really interesting that that's sort of the. And they did say that. She put them in some kind of trance. So that mm-hmm. also goes with that. Did Fleur, because Fleur is one that transfigures the rock into the dog, right? No, that's Cedric. So did Cedric kill a dog? <laughs> <laughs> well, cause really the rock was inanimate is not, you know, is not a living, breathing being. Cedric creates a living, breathing dog does he inadvertently, not inadvertently, directly contribute to the murder of a dog? No, he puts the dog in danger, but the dragon changed its mind. It went towards the dog and then changed its mind and went towards Hagrid. So therefore the dog is still surviving. Is the dog similar to the chocolate frogs where like they have some magic to them, but eventually they're going to revert back to their original state in the frog's case, a piece of chocolate and the dog's case, a rock? Or like, is that like a dog for the rest of its existence? That's a really good question. And I wish we had more info on a transfiguration class because that we could also have a whole discussion on like the ethics of like that situation. Like, is it more of a dog or is it more of a rock? Because that's what it was beforehand. I'm of the opinion it would, because he is not like a super powerful wizard He's still learning these things that there's a time limit. And this is just headcanon for me is that the more powerful you are, the stronger your spell will be. So I think eventually it would have reverted back to rock. I like that. I also wonder though, like if it's, you know, if it's not like an actual dog, it just like looks like one. Appears you to know? look like one. And so the other thing that, I really want to touch on before I share all of my dragon symbolism research with you guys 
is that I love that Madame Pomfrey is the only one who's like, this whole task was a stupid idea and I can't believe they did it. I also want to add that they're like, hey, we're going to have these kids get in front of dragons, see what happens, and let's let the whole school watch and they will not be traumatized by this. Right? I'm like, there's 11 year olds in the audience, like whose parents are like, you can't watch this show because it has this. But you can go watch one of your classmates possibly get maimed by a dragon. Yeah, but look, in the first year, there was a, I mean, this is more of we're voluntarily bringing the trauma to you rather than trauma inadvertently being kind of put upon you. (laughs) But in the first year, there was a troll. Uh, In the second year, there's a giant people petrifying slash murdering snake. You know, in the third year, they have a teacher who's a werewolf. And while we all know the morality of that's a lot more complicated, the simple fact of the matter is they have a professor who once a month transforms into a murderous werewolf. So like at this point, if you're at Hogwarts, the the trauma kind of like comes with the tuition. Can you imagine that letter to the parents? Like, hi, your kid's a first year. They're 11. We're going to watch this dragon attack. We're sorry. We know that your kid isn't allowed to watch. Yeah, but like, no, come on. If you think that Dumbledore, but really probably McGonagall is out there writing letters proactively saying, hey, by the way, no, come on. They don't do that. This is more of a do first and, and beg forgiveness later kind of situation. And yet there's no like counselor at Hogwarts for these students. No counselor. And I still need a permission sh- uh, slip to go into Hogsmeade. The only form of counseling you get is if you happen to be your head of house's favorite student, and then you get all the counseling in the world right there with your head of house because you're like the pet. Uh, Beyond that, you're kind of just screwed. Pretty much. Poor students. Okay, so are you ready for some dragon information? I've been ready since the moment you texted me saying these were the chapters we were going to be reading. So uh, dragons actually have a lot of different symbolic meanings in different cultures and different religions. Um, The different meanings have a wild range. Um, So it's a symbol that combines the serpent and the bird and together they form one of the most powerful monsters. And I immediately thought of Slytherin and the Phoenix, which saves Harry in the Chamber of Secrets against another type of serpent, the Basilisk. And funnily enough, later on in my research, I found that phoenixes and dragons were actually considered to balance each other out. It's like a yin and yang style. They're also a symbol of power, wisdom, strength, hidden knowledge, chaos. They represent fire and passion and They also have been a symbol of evil and been a form of the devil and they're connected to false prophets and the antichrist and they're also thought to rule and live in hell. Yet there are other beliefs that say that they are a sign of good fortune and health and luck. Um, Dragons have also been known to represent water in all different forms, so like positive and negative. So rain, but also flooding. It's also associated with another animal, the crocodile. And they've been associated with royalty and power in some parts of the world, as well as been part of certain creation stories. And they were also associated with leadership, power, strength, and they had an association with underground realms. And as a spirit animal, they represent spiritual transformation. So vulnerability that develops into strength as well as wealth and prosperity. And dragons have also been associated with treasure, specifically guarding treasure. And we see them a lot as an obstacle, like a hero needs to get through like a drag or like a knight slaying a dragon. So my big question here is, With all of that in mind, and with this image of princes and knights slaying dragons in fairy tales, what does it mean that this was Harry's first task? It could have been anything, but it was a dragon. Well, I think this kind of plays into your question earlier about what is it about this first task that convinces Ron that Harry didn't do it? 
in society, dragons very much are regarded. Also, well done, by the way. I mean, it was as expected. That was as quality as I expect from you at this point, but very well done. Um, dragons are very much seen as that like final frontier, that final fantastical challenge, whereas that's inverted on its head here, and it's the first challenge. So then one only assumes that tasks two and three are going to be even more wild if dragons were the first. And so I think it's meant to represent that, okay, like we're resetting the stakes here because, you know, if we were to believe lore, the final task would be dragons because that's where you conquer and vanquish the ultimate challenge and you become, you know, insert metaphor here of, you know, Daenerys or whatever, right? You could, so many metaphors. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's meant to convey that like, okay, the stakes are raised here. This is no longer, you know, this isn't one of your kiddie stories where you fight the dragon at the end, but you turn out okay. This is meant to be a whole different, whole different ballgame. I could agree with that. Like, I've read a lot of books with dragons in them. And I guess like you were talking about, and I'm like, the dragons that first came to mind were not like, the ones to be conquered. They was like, oh, Riot and the Last Dragon, which I recently watched. You know what I was thinking? Here's a throwback for all you 90s kids. Dragon Tales, Dragon Tales, let's all go to Dragon Tales. Fun fact, I was part of a focus group as a preschooler that helped decide the main characters for that show. What? Yep, I was, it was preschool, West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, shout out Strawberry Hill. And I, to this day, I'm not really sure how it happened, but yeah, some person came in and showed us a bunch of different photos and there was like Quetzal and there's all the different ones. And we gave them feedback as preschoolers do on which dragons we liked. And well done. Here I, I am loved today. that show. Yeah, it uh, altered the course of my life. I keep singing the song from Pete's Dragon about seeing a dragon, but that's one, not even my generation. So I doubt you're aware of it unless you know the remake. I have no idea what you're talking about. Per usual. <laughs> so. Whenever you bring up references from your youth, it's like they weren't you know, Judy Garland and <laughs> and um, Humphrey Bogart and Gone with the Wind and all this stuff. And I just have no idea. I'm trying to see what year the original came out. The remake was 2016, but it was not a musical. The original was 1977, but it was one of my favorite movies, even though I was not born for at least a decade after <laughs> shut up Steven done with you but there was a whole song about dragons because there's a dragon in the movie but yeah I guess I will agree with Steven for once in his life that's that's at least like the third time tonight you've agreed with me so let's not caveat it with this hyperbole that's not even close to accurate I like dragons I do too and I, Stephen, I think I think you're right that it, you know, it it is flipped, you know, where the dragon isn't, you know, the ultimate task to beat. This is this is just the beginning, and we're only going to see more from here on out. And it also because I've talked about before on this podcast about how the you know, the books grow up as Harry grows up and, you know, Harry's 14 now. We're starting to, you know, get into teenage stuff and, you know, Harry has a crush now and, you know, things, this, the first chapter of this book didn't start off with Harry. It started off, you know, with different characters. So already things are different. And so I wonder if that's part of, part of this, where this is really a reality check you know, for us, but also for Harry of, you know, this, it's only going to get harder. You know, Harry's had to deal with a lot so far in his life. And, you know, and maybe it's just a reminder that, you know, shit's about to get real and it's about to be a lot tougher than it has been. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up, not funny, it's, I, I appreciate that you brought up, like, th this book starts differently than the other ones have, right, because as readers, it, similarly to how I think as characters, Dragon being the first task is meant to be like, a, okay, this is a whole different thing, as readers, the book opening with a different kind of both literal setting and tone and everything than the first three is like, okay, 
something different's happening here. And so I think throughout this book so far, um, there have been so many different moments where it's, oh, this is different, right? I mean, Moody's instruction, the Triwizard Cup in and of itself, everything about it is different than kind of the cadence that we've been led to, to expect and anticipate from a year at Hogwarts, our time in the pages of Harry Potter. It is interesting to see um, how Hermione responds to the boys fighting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, it's a, I mean, I was going to say it surprised me that Hermione like cried about it, but I, you know, I've cried from frustration before too. <laughs> well, and you also like with her, those are her only two real friends. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't really hang out with anyone. Whereas, you know, something happens, Ron has his brothers to fall back on. Hermione just has the two of them really that really understand her and can relate to her. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question. I was listening to a podcast about The Office. Um, it's a deep dive run by Brian Baumgartner who played Kevin. And one of the things that I think a writer or a producer had brought up was the documentary crew for The Office wasn't in the office every single day. They only showed up when they knew something was happening, which uh, translating this into a point you just made, Danny, which is Hermione has no other friend other than Ron and Harry. A question I have is, is that true, do we think? Or like, like, like so are, is JKR only writing? Or are we as readers only seeing the quote unquote momentous stuff? Or do we think there's this whole other world of canon that's happening that just isn't like fascinating, right? As readers to, to see and to read and to, to explore. So like maybe Hermione does have friends and a life, but because it doesn't pertain to the story that we as readers are being told, we don't get it in the pages. I mean, I feel like Hermione, I mean, she has to have some sort of relationship with the girl she shares a dorm with. However, my understanding, you know, from book one was that nobody, nobody liked Hermione. Um, Like that's how she ended up crying in a bathroom. Yeah. And so I think even though like her relationship with like her dorm mates might, you know, be polite and friendly. Um, I have a feeling they probably don't invite Hermione to like hang out or like they don't ask her to like, I don't, I mean, I, I guess you can't really have a, like a real sleepover right. if you all share a room anyway, but you know what I mean? Like staying up late gossiping, like Hermione seems like the kind of person who's very above that, especially what we see in like these chapters where she's like, which it bothers me because she is really annoyed with all of the girls that are crushing on Crumb. And yet she was like totally obsessed with Lockhart. <laughs> you met, you mentioned this on your last episode. I was listening to it you earlier, did. which is my take on that is she learned. She got burned by Lockhart. And so now <laughs> that's why she's out on all these people, you know, fawning all over, uh, over Victor. Uh, Otherwise, Fair. I think she's probably right back in there crushing on him. That said, I also think there's something to be made out of Hermione as an intellectual and Lockhart, you know. Appeared to be an intellectual. Appeared to be an intellectual, a charming intellectual, whereas Victor Crumb is a very different type of man. While I personally don't have opinions on different levels of, tra- of attractiveness in men, there has to be a sizable difference between the men who are, you know, brawny versus brainy, one would assume. Yeah. Right. The things we know about her roommates are they are a bit of a gaggle of gossipy girls that Stephen would have hung out at Hogwarts with. As someone who is both brawny and brainy, I don't know what it's like to have to pick one or the other. You know, women want me because I am both. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, you know, it's funny, though. You said that Hermione ended up crying in the bathroom in the first year because... Um, she had no friends. She ended up crying in the bathroom because specifically because of the boys, right? Not, right. One would assume that none of the girls were there to comfort her or pick her up, but the text, the actual textual explanation is that, you know, Ron made her cry, um, which is different than saying she had no friends. I don't know what that means necessarily. I'm not smart enough to get into kind of an but analysis of no that. No one I, went for her. No one went and found her, which adds to, because most girls, if you find out your girlfriend is crying in a bathroom, you're either going to sit outside waiting for them or you're going to go hunt them down. But 
nobody hunted her down. She was not at dinner. They only found out because people were talking about the fact she was crying in a bathroom. So people knew, but no one went and got her. Yeah. You know what Ron and Harry said to her when she was crying after uh, the first task? Lift up your head, wash off your mascara. Here, take my Kleenex, wipe that lipstick away. Show me your face, it's clean as the morning. I know things were bad, I just won the first task. And look, I got tickets to see that in the fall. I'm so excited. So Jeremy Jordan, Tammy Blanchard, Christian Borle, who I saw as um, Willy Wonka a couple of years ago, a while ago now, five years ago. Anyhow, we're far off the tracks here. Um, I have no further commentary on the Harry Potter series, specifically chapters 19 and 20. Well, thank you guys for joining me for these two chapters. Suddenly Potter dun, 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 is in the Triwizard Tournament. That was a stretch. He says he didn't enter. Ron doesn't believe him. Suddenly Potter do, 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 is facing a dragon. Cedric killed a dog. <laughs> And crumb. Allegedly. That's all I got. I, this, this was a pleasure as always, Sarah. We appreciate you. Um, looking forward to seeing how you edit this one down to make me sound coherent. I'll do my best. Great. <laughs> do you guys have anything coming up? Anything you want to share and shout out? Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity, Sarah. First and foremost, people should feel free to follow me at Muggling Khakis. Um, because that's where you get all the, the high quality khaki content. Um, unless, of course, you're looking to the king of khakis, the protector of the pleat, the, uh, the charlatan of the chino, that's Steve Kornacki. Um, but we recently spent a lovely weekend morning over at Orchard Works um, in Stafford Springs, Connecticut, uh, Orchard Works is a wand shop. They do handmade wands, more than 150 different types of wood. No mention of if Oliver's was there. Um, most people who are Harry Potter con goers know Orchard Works as one of the major wand shops that's at these. It's Ed, the tall dude in the steampunk hat, uh, is how I always, before I actually knew him, identified him. Uh, but we spent a lovely, lovely time with them. Uh, I have photos up at Muggle and Khakis from our visit there. I know Danny has some content she'll be sharing. And right after this episode drops for in first years um, over at Creating Magic, we're going to release a conversation that we have with Ed and Janet, the owners, uh, husband and wife uh, owner of Orchard Works. And we have some wands and wand stands that we're going to give away um, straight from their showroom. So really excited to do that. Um, yeah, anything you want to add, Danny? I think that's it. Just follow along and we will be posting photos of those wands and wand holders. Just to clarify, not of Oliver's wand, of you know, actual wands from their shop, just for the record. Although if you want to see Oliver's wand, www.mugglingkaggies.com backslash onlyfans. Hit me up. <laughs> well, that all sounds very exciting. <laughs> That's a way to put it. Thank you guys again for joining me. I'm always happy when you guys can come on. Thanks for having us. Bye. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones-Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have. And we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.